Women aren't born warriors, we become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week I'm interviewing women who through tragedy and triumph are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. It's not easy for mothers of young children to get in that political door. Here are the depressing facts to prove it. At the start of 2020, only 26 Congress seats are held by moms with children under 18. That's 5% of our legislators. In total, there are 131 women sitting in the Senate and House seats, comprising of less than 24% of Congress. About 88% of women become mothers by the age of 44 in the U.S., yet despite making up such a large segment of the population, they make up the smallest number in our federal government. Imagine the political landscape if elected seats were filled by qualified, hardworking moms who know what firsthand the majority of Americans endure day to day, raising the children of our future. Moms in office endorsed and supported over 20 women during the 2020 election cycle. You can support Moms in Office by going to momsinoffice.org. Let's get those moms running for office. We're having a special episode today in honor of Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Warrior Moms. Warrior Moms are some of my favorite people, you know. As I'm joining you today, I found out that a warrior mom that I really like and I've gotten to know will be passing soon of cancer. Lainey was the glue that held everybody together, her family and her friends, and we will miss her. My ask today is that you give to our favorite cancer charity in Lainey's honor. They're our sponsor today, the Cancer Cartel. They work to cover the invisible costs of cancer, made me want to be a monthly donor. Cancer is expensive, and when you are in the trenches fighting, having your rent, groceries, bills, and other expenses covered is a blessing. Please donate to the Cancer Cartel at cancercartel.com. Today's guest was raised by a warrior mom and has started a foundation in her honor and in the process found her true calling. Depression is something we're hearing a lot about lately, and with COVID has been at an all-time high across the globe. 350 million people struggle with some form of depression across the country and the world, and that is a conservative estimate. Can we find a cure for depression? My guest today says yes. She also says that resilience can be in our DNA. As always, thank you for tuning in, and please donate to Moms in Office and the Cancer Cartel in honor of moms, our two sponsors today, in honor of Mother's Day. Gas money, groceries, power bills, mortgage payments. Imagine having all of that and battling cancer. The Cancer Cartel was founded by three fabulous women, all cancer survivors who you met in episode 27, with the important mission to provide financial resources and relief to those fighting cancer. Those in the fight against cancer should be able to focus 100% on getting well, not on how much cancer is costing them. The Cancer Cartel funds their mission by accepting donations of any amount, I'm a monthly donor, and by collecting and selling donated luxury designer handbags, shoes, jewelry, clothing, and accessories on their website and at events. The Cancer Cartel also has branding clothing, 
which donates 100% of the profit back to their initiative. Cancer is expensive. Help and donate today. Go to cancercartel.com. That's cancer, C-A-R-T-E-L.com. Today on the show, we have Audrey Gruss. Audrey is the founder and chairman of the Hope for Depression Research Foundation, HDRF, which she established in 2006 in memory of her late mother, Hope, who battled clinical depression for decades. HDRF's mission is to fund pioneering international scientific research into the origins, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of depression and its related mood and other emotional disorders with the ultimate goal of finding a cure. Additionally, in 2017, Audrey created the Hope Fragrance Collection, a line of fragrances that donate 100% of the net profits directly to Hope for Depression Research Foundation. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Thank you. Elizabeth, it's so nice to be here and have a chance to talk to you about some very important things. Yes. I was even saying to you, uh, you know, off camera, I was saying to you, this is like a thing that we're always talking about. It's everywhere all the time, especially now. And I don't know, I when I saw what you did, I was like, this is so great. Cause I just feel like, well, what are we doing about this? Like, I, I just feel like it's everywhere. It's so prevalent. And what is anybody doing about it, about depression? So I'm so thankful to have you today. So I like to go back to the Thank beginning you. and especially because your mom is such an inspiration to you. I wanted to ask you to tell me about your life growing up with your mom, Hope, and what would that was like your inspiration for starting this whole foundation? Thank you, Elizabeth. My mother was a very creative woman. She was very up, very energetic. She wrote poetry every day of her life. It was something that she loved to do. She loved to dance. She loved to sing. Her sister had been an opera singer. Her other sister was an artist. So there was creativity in her veins, in her system. And I loved all of that about her. She was, she made me see beauty all around me. And that creativity, I think, has been one of the things that has enabled me to do the things that I enjoy in life. And it's like life before her nervous breakdown and life after she was diagnosed. Years ago, this was decades ago, when she was in her early 30s, she had what was then called a nervous breakdown. She just went into catatonic kind of collapse. And now we know it to be major depressive disorder. But years ago, the doctors didn't talk much to the family. They felt it was all very private, private. All they told my father and my father told my two sisters and me was that our mother had a nervous breakdown. I mean, we were like eight and nine or 10 years old or whatever. We thought we felt guilty. We thought, what did we do to mommy? Exactly. We broke her nerves. Yes. It was shocking to us. We had no idea. Nobody else around us, no other family was able to explain to us what my mother was going through. She at that time was hospitalized. And when she came home, she felt better. But over the next decades, as other medications were developed, she obviously was put on other medications at that time. She was on tricyclics and, and whatever was the state of the art at that time. But as we know, Prozac was introduced in 1985. And all the other medications out there are variations of Prozac. So for 35 years, since 1985, 
Every pharmaceutical company wanted to get a piece of that activity. And they created their Celexa and Cymbalta and um, uh, Effexor. And I can't even remember all of them. There's about yeah, there's a lot, 17 yeah. or 20 very, very well-known and very effective antidepressants. But they all essentially work on the serotonin and norepinephrine-based um, approach. So we found out that 35% of the people who struggle with uh, depression, and when I say depression, I'm really talking about its related mood disorders and emotional disorders, yes. bipolar depression, major depression, postpartum depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and anxiety, and then whatever else comes into that umbrella. So we found out that 35% do not respond to the uh, to the Prozac type of medication. Mm. We desperately need new medications and treatments for the people who struggle out there. Yes. Depression is number one in the world, Elizabeth, oh. for disability. Yes. I don't think anybody knows that. Yes, That's no, I was your, researching your site is fascinating to me because there were so many facts. But I want to I want to go back for one second. Yes. So you were talking about your mom. Before her nervous breakdown, did you have any idea? Like, did you think? No idea whatsoever. So she just she was seemed the to most you energetic. Yeah. She was vivacious. She was energetic. She was fun. She was so creative is the word that I keep using. And we loved her and we loved being around her because she would make our Easter outfits, for example. She would sew and make us all our, not all our clothes, but very special clothes. And she was so interesting. So we really, as children, were involved. You know, we just wanted to do our thing. We wanted to play and go to school and make sure that dinner was ready and enjoy what yeah. she cooked and, and whatever. We had no idea. But obviously, something must have been going on mm -hmm. in her psyche, in her brain, in her makeup that, and it was the trauma of the war, I think was a lot of it. The wow. shock of leaving her country in Europe because the communists took it over and traveling with my father to Germany and France and then coming over here as displaced persons was a shock to her very gentle and obviously artistic, artistic system. Sensitive, yeah. And her sensitivity. She, she must yeah. have, her sensitivity must have been super sensitive to this trauma and change in her life. They know very little about what causes depression. They know that child abuse is one of the, one of the important things that child abuse or trauma to causes can be a potential eventual cause of depression. And they know that it's, can be genetic. Mm -hmm. Some doctors even say that about a third in a person's background is genetic in terms of having mental health, heritability, as they call it. Yes. So yeah. mother was uh, wonderful to be with. And was she different after she came back? Like when she came back she after was, the hospital? She was very different. She was numbed. She was on medication. Yeah. She was not alert. She was not the mother that we knew. She was definitely calmer, less energetic, not sad. I mean, I, I don't remember her being sad though beforehand. So that's she a huge was adjustment for you, Audrey. That's a huge country. adjustment for you. Not only do you have this great mother, then all the, out of nowhere in your mind, seemingly, 
She goes. She, she goes breaks. away. She goes away. She gone. Goes away. Now she comes back. She She's away. not the person that left. So you lost her once, then you lose her twice because she's Absolutely. not the person that was there before. No, but it was very hard. I yeah. must say it's something that I don't even like to go back to yeah. because it was painful. It was yeah. confusing. It was painful. We didn't have enough information. We felt guilt because maybe, you know, we weren't perfect kids. Maybe yeah. we had something to do with her nerves breaking. But my father was a wonderful, gentle, loving man. And we had him in our lives always to stabilize us. But I think that there's embarrassment because, you know, kids are always asking, where's your mother? And then if they at points might see her or something, they think there's something off with her. So there was an embarrassment. There was a sensitivity about it. There was a protective feeling to protect her. Yeah. My mother doesn't feel well. She's ill. We never knew to say the words mental illness. We never knew that. Right. It was never kind of the way that anything was described. Right. No, um, you probably felt very protective and you didn't want her to have all the stigma that comes with, you know, absolutely. somebody that would be looked at in that way. There has been stigma about emotional and mental illness for centuries. Yes. And I think many people have been afraid over the years, as we saw it in movies and literature and anything about crazy people. Mm -hmm. And those are the people who are out of touch with reality. Those are the psychotic people. Schizophrenia represents the majority part of that group of illness. We're dealing with and studying the non-psychotic illness where depression is like the common cold. Right. Uh, mental illness. Mm -hmm. And um, it is it is so frequent. There's yeah. 350 million people around the world. And that's a very conservative estimate. Oh, I'm sure uh, there's much more. Struggle with depression. <laughs> I'm sure so, there's much more. Yeah. Well, tell, I'm tell sure me much more. more. Tell me, how did watching your mother go through that teach you personally resilience because i think it's it's times like this right when Absolutely. we have to kind of grow up a little younger than you know it's kind of like that reality right that just hits that. you elizabeth yeah. it's like something a psychiatrist would understand so you must be a psychiatrist at heart anyway I am at heart <laughs> you must be but um absolutely it it made you that protectiveness that inner strength you just had to go on about your life and you had this kind of other secret, this other thing, this precious person you loved that you didn't quite understand what was happening, but it was your mother. I mean, that mother-child bond is amazing. And all the positive things that she imbued in my sisters and I um, continued. So there's no doubt that, and I was the oldest, so I always had to be protective of my two sisters and kind of help raise them and everything. And it makes you be stronger, be more adult, be more responsible. And it is a hard thing to carry on your shoulders, but it's happening to you while you're not even aware of it. Right. So that's a very, very good point. Now I want to talk to you about resilience. We are studying resilience with our neuroscientists. Oh. And there are people in our animal research, it actually shows that there are resilience genes in our system. Some people are more resilient than others. And wow. we, we infer that from our animal studies. 
And we now are studying um, in people in clinical trials to see who is resilient. You can be, you can have the same difficult situation, and some are simply absolutely more resilient. It's like water off their back, and other people let everything hit them, everything get to them, everything affect them. So resilience is one of the most important areas of our work. Oh my gosh, I love that you're studying that. I need to know everything you find out (laughs) because I'm very interested. We Um, all do. Yes. Tell me. So the doctors, you know, obviously there, there isn't a cure for depression. They didn't find it then, but what, what led you to start this foundation? I mean, that, what a, what an incredible story of growing up, but like what made you actually take it on as a cause? It was only after my mother passed away. I was so close to her, as I mentioned, I was bereft when she died. And we always uh, took my mother to the best doctors. We thought she was getting the best medicine, but I had recently noticed she had been hospitalized because they took her away. They took away all the medicine she was on. She was on a cocktail of something and they were re bringing her up to a whole new combination of medicines. And I asked her psychiatrist after she died, I said, why wasn't my mother totally relieved of her symptoms. She had depression and anxiety. And I said, why, why, what were all these medications? Why were some, you know, are they all new? Are they from Europe? Are are they from different places? I just assumed, as most people assume, that the big pharmaceutical companies are all amazing, that they do this amazing research, and that new medications are coming in from all over the world to America, and that my mother was getting them. She was getting variations of the SSRIs in combination and one of the most popular cocktails today, and it's effective, it works in many people, is an antidepressant with an antipsychotic called Abilify. And there are other versions of that because the antipsychotic simply enhances the effectiveness of the antidepressant without increasing the dosage significantly. So my mother was on some version of that cocktail, but she still had side effects and side effects are different with each drug. So as I spoke to one doctor, then another, and I was introduced to a neuroscientist who said, Audrey, if you want to do something, let's do a whole neuroscience building at such and such a university. I said, oh my goodness, this is a little bit more than I hope to chew on. And, um, but, I, it, but it fascinated me because my husband and I supported many charities. We looked one year and we supported 200 charities significantly. And um, they were all valid, all wonderful, all things that we love, culture, the arts, medicine, and, all, and education. And all, you know, we were very positive about everything we did. But Nothing touched me. Nothing touched my heart. Nothing was. You didn't feel that, that connection. You didn't feel that connection. connection. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that made me work 24 hours a day and all of that. And after meeting a few more scientists and whatever, I thought, you know, I can do something. They told me how much that there was a crisis going on in depression research. Just in that year, seven of the 10 top pharmaceutical companies had stopped doing brain research or mental illness research. It was in the New York Times. I was reading that 
thinking about all the things that I was told that there was such a need for this. And I thought, okay, let's let's see what we've got here in the group. Right, no one's doing it. So and yes. all of my history, all of my education, all of my work career, it all kind of came together to put this foundation together. The creativity in terms of creating the logo. Of course, I brought in a graphics design company. The name, my mother, Hope. Yes, my mother's Hope. name was Hope, Elizabeth. I mean, that's that's the, so, the most incredible thing is her name is Hope and you're giving Hope too, which is amazing. Yes, amazing. it was meant to be. It was yeah. meant to be. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Yes. It all fell into place. We incorporated properly. We did all the nonprofit things, the tax things, whatever. And then some doctors were introduced to me, some researchers, and I thought, wow, they've got a new approach. Let's go this way. So I started the foundation in 2006, the year after my mother's death, and we are now, in a short 15 years, the leading depression research organization in the country. Amazing. We are focusing on depression. This was a result of my marketing knowledge. I thought, I can't take on the whole neuroscience field, everything from psychotic to to non-psychotic to this, to that. So if we can solve and find some new medications for depression and then find prevention and all of that, we will be doing good for the rest of the field of mental illness. So it is fabulous. Our concept of creating the depression task force, which we created seven years ago, was, and this was also a marketing thing for my marketing career, I wanted everybody to work together. I had realized that in the science world, everybody works in silos. Yeah, They work in a silo. They get, they try to raise money for their university. They publish papers only after the information is published. Is it open to everybody else? At HDRF, our research is input in real time into a computer database at the University of Michigan called the Hope the Hope database the Hope uh, computer so the doctors can check with each other adjust their research they share animal research they share animals sometimes and it is allowing them to move further and faster in getting answers as a matter of fact we are now in three clinical trials one is for a new major new category of antidepressant called tianeptine. And I know that it's uh, being tested at Mount Sinai and being tested at Columbia. I can't remember right now the third place where it's being tested, or maybe that's happening next year. But we are very, very positive about the probability Mm -hmm. of having this be a new category and help those 35% of people that need something. So we're doing proof of concept testing, and then we hope to turn it over to a major pharmaceutical company that can spend whatever is necessary to have it go through FDA and become available to the world. What would that be? I I mean, mean, incredible. Tens of millions. No, incredible. I learned from researching just before you came on and, you know, I took the week looking into depression. And again, I kept kept coming back to me like, my gosh, it's something we're talking about all the time. Who's doing anything? Obviously you are, Audrey. (laughs) But I learned a lot by researching and also going on your site that depression is by far the most prevalent 
it's 99% of all mind-brain illness, that the primary reason why a person dies of suicide every 14 minutes is from depression, and that it takes an annual toll of 100 billion a year on business. And that blew my mind. And that's conservative. But this is what's kind of confusing to me, Audrey. Okay. Why is nobody getting into this with you? How come you are the lone Audrey Wolf? The lone wolf. What is going on? How are we not recognizing? I'm a lone wolf. But but is it but is it because we just think there's no cure and we've just given up? What is it? Elizabeth, it's stigma. When I first started this, some of my lovely friends in New York who belong to all the right quote-unquote charities said to me, why are you doing this? It's so hard. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's like, why are you taking this on? Well, I took it on because my mother up there is watching me. And it's something that I felt I understood better than somebody who didn't go through anything like this. And I realized and I learned how necessary it is. It is absolutely essential. It is the last frontier of medicine, the mind and the brain. And today, right now, this minute, normally we have about 20 million people with depression every year, okay, struggling in America. The CDC, in combination with the Census Bureau, did a study last year that showed 50% of Americans are either in some form of depression or anxiety during this pandemic. That's, a, that's over 175 million people. That's and it's, there is still a stigma about talking about mental health, doing something about mental health, admitting anything. And I think this long, long ranging stigma is what prevents people from getting involved or supporting it or getting excited or saying, I can make a difference in this field. It's ridiculous because our mind controls our bodies and depression is a mind and brain and body illness. Well, that's also what you say. You say you don't really like the term mental illness. That's part of it, right? That part of that stigma. Yes. Elizabeth, at the beginning, I would instruct my staff and we would always say, let's stay away from mental illness because mental illness is kind of pejorative. Um, People used to say mental illness and whatever, you know, brochures or things or whenever they spoke about it. And I thought, let's use mind brain and see if we can have this catch on. Mind and brain is at least more physical and uh, whatever, you know, psychological reasons there were. We use that in our literature. But I realized over the years that it is so needed. The work is so necessary. Raising awareness about this condition and what should be done is so important that mental health is so understood as mental illness is pejorative. Mental health is kind of a more positive term that we have to use because it's so world worldwide. It's so worldwide, uh, worldwide understood. Um, the stigma is amazing. Men especially hmm. struggle so. Their whole muscular, emotional kind of whole being is this macho kind of thing where they're taught not to show emotion, not to talk about it, not to share. 
they don't speak to their wife, their doctor, their girlfriend, anybody. They just they just struggle, they suffer, and then they kill themselves. Right. The the highest incidence of, of suicide is in white males and older wow. white males. Older wow. white males. And men have more guns than women. Mm. So in terms of gun control, I don't want to be political, but the re- it's an absolute reason, yes. a fact, that the guns cause more suicide in men. Yes. Women are a little bit more open, a lot more open. They will talk to their girlfriends. They'll talk to each other. They'll talk to their husband. They'll go to a doctor and try to get help. What we are doing is bifold at HDRF. We are trying to raise awareness, decrease the stigma so that people can get help. No one needs to struggle. They can get help. They may not get maximum help, because everyone is different, but they will get help and they don't have to go through this psychic pain. Um, It is so important to speak to anybody that you know, that you know, you think is not acting themselves or whatever, but that's a whole other thing. 10 signs of depression and what we can do when we know that somebody- Let's talk about that. I, I was just talking to a girlfriend the other day and I don't know her that well. But there was just something that just was not right. And we were on a Zoom off, like this. Right? It like was off. I on. Yeah. I, again, I don't know her that deeply, but I felt compelled. So she said, I said, how are you? She said, I'm okay. And I said, you're not okay. And she said, I'm not okay. And she got a bunch of tears in her eyes. And I said, I just need to know, are you, are you taking anything? Are you taking anything? Or do you want to take something? Like, do you, do you, you know, are you open to medication or how are you feeling about that? And she said, oh, I used to be on medication, but it just numbed me out too much. And I, you know, it ruins my creativity. And that's when I get worried. Cause I'm like, okay, well don't go off it. Maybe find another thing, you know? Yes, good so, for you. Yeah. So I, I'm going to stay on her a little bit, but it it was, it's hard because I understand that too. Creative people. I am one. Your mother was one. We don't want to be numbed out. We don't want to be not ourselves, but also you don't want to be in a pit where you can't do anything and you can't create either. So there's a, there's a, there's a balance there. Elizabeth, what you can do again when you speak or see your friend is say, please go back to your doctor if you don't want to go to this particular psychiatrist that you've been seeing, you know, I'll go with you. Let's go to your internist and get a recommendation for somewhere else. Psychopharmacologists who are the leading psychiatrists who understand medication uh, more than others. They're just better trained at that. Psychopharmacologists are the best at diagnosing and seeing what variation of medications, existing medications, can be given to patients. Sometimes there is trial and error. Mm-hmm. What we are trying to do with the research is personalized medicine. Yeah. We're trying to come up with the causes of depression, the variations of depression, and new medications that will perhaps fit in to the phenotypes, as they call them, the yeah. different type of person and different type of illness that someone has. That's our ultimate goal. And we are making strides. But in the meantime, people can get help. 
And that is one of the reasons that we do the events we do or whatever we do to try to raise awareness. The second part is research. At the same time, we've got to find new and better medications and treatments. There are treatments that are being investigated that are fascinating. Tell me what are some signs um, that we should look for? Because I think sometimes that's also misleading. (laughs) What is the difference between someone who's just a little down and someone who you really need to be concerned? Where is that line? I think there's about 10 signs, very, very easy and simple signs. And I think one of the first is if you have a friend who is crying unexpectedly at the most unexpected places. You know, I had a friend that I saw, um, I don't know where we were, whatever. And all of a sudden she burst out into tears for no reason, nothing appropriate. I said, what, what is it? She said, I don't know. I just feel so sad. And it just absolutely came up bursting into tears for no apparent reason. When you think that you you know that person, you don't know why that person would be doing that is a very, um, overt sign of sadness. If someone is really just sad and down and just, um, they, they just, you know, lost interest, sadness, and then losing interest in everything that used to be pleasing and pleasant and things that you wanted to do. Eating, eating too much or eating too little, very important. And sleeping, sleeping. Oh, yeah, too the much. lack of sleep. And by the way, that can cause depression, which is even yes, worse, right? So, if but it can be sleep, sleeping too a much. Cycle. <laughs> right. Of or course, or sleeping too little. That circadian rhythm we have is very, very important. And then the idea of feeling that you're you're blaming yourself for everything that went wrong and silly things that really have nothing to do with you, ruminating and blaming yourself for ridiculous things. Also body pain. Body pain is so associated with depression. We had a lecture where Dr. Vijay Vaad in New York, who's one of the leading physiatrists or pain manager, said that 60% of his back patients were depressed. 60%. Wow. This is amazing. And it's also, you know, you have back pain, you can complain, you can ruminate, but a good doctor can tell the difference between just body pain and something that relates to depression. So I don't know how many I hit there, but I think that's you among a lot. the you ten. Well, you know, you know, Audrey, on this podcast, I'm encouraging women to be warriors. You absolutely are a warrior woman, Audrey. I, I, I would use that as a perfect term to describe you. Um, how do you continue this work and remain positive and stay in the game? Because I mean, it's gotta be frustrating. Some of the things you come up against, I'm sure things don't happen as fast as you want them to do. I cannot, she's right now, she's rolling her eyes. It's so funny. I know it's not going as fast as you want, Audrey, you were like a motor, but how do you really keep going and keep positive even when you have all these setbacks with what you're doing? I am a very positive person. And it's so interesting that you should ask this. My executive director and I tell people that every day, every morning, when we walk into that office in New York, where our main headquarters is, we are so positive and ready to go and make a difference. We are up. We're thinking of positive ways to take this on. We absolutely believe in our work. We love our work. 
We love the way we were approaching it. We love everything about our organization from the logo to the creative e-blast that we send out. It's such a positive environment that is contagious. And when we meet with people, this is a depression that you're doing. You're, you're dealing with depression. I mean, it's like we're up, we're high, we're, we're, we're so into what we're doing that it's contagious. Um, I am passionate about making a difference. And I think now, you know, things come back to me, even in, in what we had to put up with having a mother who had uh, mental health. I have other friends who joined me on the original advisory uh, council where we each had parents that, you know, we all went through similar things. All of us feel this way. We want to do something because it was so not right that our parents were hidden and hidden in the shadows and we were upset about it and ashamed about it and didn't know what to do about it. I know what to do now and I'm going to do it till I die, till till every day when I get up, I cannot wait to get going and do things. And we are making a difference and we're going to make more of a difference. And I think that, that when you believe in something, yeah, when you, you have just, purpose. Yeah. It, it just gives you a purpose. It's the structure in my life. It is what makes things tick. Although I must tell you, I love, you know, all the creativity in life. I love theater and movies and dancing and dining out and traveling and being with my husband and just hanging out. and. I love it all. So I strive for a balance in my life. But I tell you something, Elizabeth, when we first started this and before I found the executive director that I have now, who is a terrific person, Harvard educated, I knew she was ready to take over more when she finished my sentences. I mean, we were like, (laughs) she's great. But I used to work 12 hour days before an event. I'd be sometimes in the office till two in the morning, you know, polishing the edges on a speech or whatever. So when you believe in something, it is easy to kind of get that energy. Yep. Yep. I agree. And I, it's so, it's so true about you. Um, Tell me what's next for you and what are you working on? And also how can we get involved with you? Like what's our, what's our way in with you to come alongside and help with all the work you're doing? The easiest thing, and I forgot to tell you about it in the light of just how we've been talking, I created a line of fragrances um, four years ago called Hope Fragrances International. There's three Hope Fragrances. It's a lifestyle collection. The original one called Hope is made of four white flowers. My mother loved white flowers. I used to see her with different bottles on her dressing table. She, I think, was the first one who discovered tuberose. She <laughs> wore a fragrance called Fraca. Oh, F-R-A-C-A-S. I know that. C-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you can still get it, but it was divine. It was pure tuberose. And then my mother loved Mouguet de Bois from Christian Dior, which was Lily of the Valley. So um, she wore Lily of the Valley. She spray on a little tuberose. Then when she lived in Florida, she learned about Confederate jasmine night blooming jasmine. She loved it. She would sit outside on the terrace and have this blooming jasmine around her. She grew to love that, bought a bottle of jasmine, would mix that in. And then the last one was gardenia. Mm. She wear Elizabeth Taylor's gardenia and whatever gardenia fragrance before Elizabeth Taylor even created it. So in my mind, I said, what can I do? It's taking the doctor so long to research 
because they, they're, they're perfectionists. They're doing very solid, very serious research. And that takes years to come up with answers and, and conclusions. And although we're making discoveries all along that pile up and build on each other. So I thought, bingo, my mother loved fragrance. Let's call her Fragrance Hope. Let's put in these white essences. We fused all four to make something completely new, better than the individual. The first one that we created was called Hope. And that's for all purpose, all around, for anyone who loves the white flower feeling. Then I created Hope Sport for those very active women. I know during the pandemic, I put on my my gym clothes or a sweatsuit and I'm in it all day long until we go out to dinner or whatever. So I figured they're those very active, sporty women. So this fragrance, Hope Sport is green, contains a secret ingredient that I don't have to tell Estee Lauder about um, (laughs) because it's a certain percentage that doesn't have to be identified. Very distinctive, very fresh and clean. You can just jump around in it all day. And the third one we just launched in September, if you can imagine, in the middle of this pandemic, is Hope Night. Very sensual, very, very clinging and and delicious. All these proceeds go back to your foundation? 100% of profits. The fragrances are at Bergdorf Goodman in New York, online at Bergdorf Goodman, bg.com. And they're online at our um, own website, hopefragrances.com. Okay, I'm going to put Hope it in. Fragrance. Yeah, I'll put it in the uh, in the show notes, so they can go there and they can. Oh, also that's get, wonderful. They can also get more information about your events and different things. Where are you located? Absolutely, we're located in New York, and we do events in New York and in Florida, in mm-hmm. Palm Beach, Florida. We're just doing a wonderful race of hope, a virtual race of hope, on January twenty, on February twenty seventh, and that's going to be an hour program. We have racers from all over the world and walkers who are in the event and send us little snapshots and selfies of themselves while they're walking on their own time in their own place because we can't bring 700 people together. No, <laughs> but we will again one day. We will again one day. All right. Yes, we, we, we are now, Audrey, on to the, and I'm going to put all this information, by the way, everybody, in this in the show notes so you can buy the fragrance. You can go to the website. You can learn more. You can see what the research is. You can do an event, a virtual event. But for now, we're going to do the speed round questions. This is my favorite time of the show. Audrey, what is your cocktail of choice? I can't even wait to know what it is. Rosé. All day. Rosé. Whispering Angel Rosé. That is my favorite. I love it. It makes me feel like instant summer, instant beach in Sardinia. I love it. It is <laughs> south of France in a bottle. Absolutely. I love it so much. Oh my God, that's so funny. I, all my girlfriends and I, we know wherever we're going, we're like, who's going to get the Whispering Angel? Who's going to get it? <laughs> we're all exactly. going to get it right now. Exactly. Um, is what is a mantra or quote that you live by? I, every morning, ask myself, what are the three things that I'm grateful for? That's the most important thing that I do every morning. Mm-hmm. It has to be different every day. What three things are you grateful for? I like that. Um, well, that's the one I was also going to ask you. Tell us one thing you do every day to set yourself up. That's what I do Success. every that's morning. That's it. Yeah, you every ask morning. That's okay. it. It's um, my mantra. Whatever I say, whatever those three things are, repeat them to myself. 
while I'm exercising or whatever, it really makes the difference. And the four pillars of mental health yes. are good exercise, yes. sleep, nutrition, and meditation. We can all do it and have better, better mental health in our lives. I, I will tell you that the common thread of these now 53 warrior women I have interviewed is almost every single person does meditation. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? These resilient women can all point back. And some of them will say, oh, I just go outside and stare at a tree. I'm like, oh, you're meditating. That's what you're doing. You know, some of them don't call it that, but that's what it is. So that's very interesting. Um, What makes you feel unstoppable? What makes me feel unstoppable? The sun, just being outside, getting beautiful, fresh air. I just love, I love nature. I think nature just surrounds me with why we're alive and surrounds me with a very positive feeling. It's very restorative, that's for sure. Um, What are you most proud of? I really am most proud of my foundation. I think that um, it's been my baby for um, the last 15 years, and um, I'm going to watch it keep growing and keep producing results. We are going to come up with some very good things to help people around the world. Uh, I'm, 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 I can see how you are racing towards a cure, and I think you're going to do it. Um, what is exciting you the most right now? Oh my goodness. I hadn't seen these questions before. So I know. By, by the way, usually everyone gets a script. Audrey did not even get hers, but how great did she do? So who even cares? But what what's exciting you? What's kind of getting you really excited right now? Is it something you're working on or something in your life? It could be even like, I'm going to go to dinner night tonight with my husband. It could be yeah, anything. I tell you, I'll tell you what I love is we're in, in Palm Beach, Florida, and we can eat outdoors. It is yeah. so beautiful. It's so refreshing. And I think a little Prosecco, a little, uh, a little rosé uh, at the end of a long day, just and, and watching, you know, a beautiful sunset or something is really so, it's just lovely and it's so positive and it's just so restorative. I think yes. that's a wonderful word. Oh my God. We need beauty right now more than anything, don't we? Exactly. We just need- I look for beauty in everything. I love to surround myself with flowers and with and with scent and with, and I love to, um, we can't entertain, but we can have two or four people over outside where we're kind of in masked, but then we take off our masks and I socially distance people six feet apart at a very long table. And we'll have a little dinner and kind of look at the sunset and you just think, wow, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, really. This whole thing is really, I think, got us all down to what is like really important, right? Yeah. And I think the vaccines right now, oh, that one shot should be helpful. I just hope the whole world gets vaccinated. I know. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, for joining me today. The work you're doing is so important. And I was so excited to get to know you and know how you started this and all the great things you're doing. And all I can say is, keep going because you are really, you are inspiring me. I'm excited thank about the work. So Elizabeth, thank you so much. And if it comes that we can travel again and I'm in LA, I'd love to get together with you and yes. spray all my perfumes on you. <laughs> I would love it. I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> great to be with you. 
Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining me today. And remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review, a positive one. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. Remember, every woman has a story. You just have to ask her. Bye.